Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Gwen Tolios. She is an asexual, independent author. She publishes short stories, middle grade novels, and soon new adult romance. So she's here to talk about her queerness, her love of reading, writing, and travel. So I'm excited to learn more about Gwen and get to know her today. So thank you so much for being here, Gwen. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. So hi, everyone. I'm Gwen. Um, I am primarily an author. Like That is a bigger part of my identity than I ever expected it to be. Um, I do also identify as both biromantic and asexual, because I understand that those sometimes are new terms for people. Um, And I just kind of hang out in Chicago, coffee shops with my cat. Um, And then when I can, go out and travel and see new places. I can't stay in one place very long. I'm surprised I've lived in Chicago as long as I have. It's been the longest place I've ever lived. <laughs> um, so, but I just like to go out and have adventures, be they fictional or real. Right. Well, since, you know, biromantic and asexual might be terms that people not don't necessarily know, why don't we start there and then we can dive into books a little bit later. So do you want to share what those mean and like kind of how you came to those identities? Sure. Yes. So um, coming to those identities um, was actually part of just discovering what they were. Um, So just to start with definitions is asexuality is the um, is a sexual identity where you don't feel sexual attraction. Um, It is a very broad spectrum um, in terms of how intense you might have any attraction, how frequently what that might be, what you're comfortable with. There's even a whole separate spectrum for like your preference for sex, like whether you're like sex positive, sex neutral, sex negative. Um, There's a lot of stuff that goes through there, Um, but it's 100% focused on the sexual side of things. Um, And then in doing so, then you actually separate it from romantic feelings. So how you feel about being in a relationship, how you feel like interacting with people, those romantic things um, get separated out into romantic identities and that's what biromantic is um so biromantic means um romantically attracted to my gender and others um so a little different than pan there's some nuances there um but essentially i am interested in being in a relationship with anyone but in a sexual relationship with pretty much no one (laughs) and so how has that worked for you trying to find a partner it has actually been difficult. I will say that. Um, part of that also was I didn't even start looking for a partner until I was like late 20s. Um, I've always been ace, didn't identify until my late 20s. But early on, how it manifested was just like, I don't care about finding a partner. Like, let's let's focus on other things. Let's focus on life. Let's go have adventures. Let's like focus on my hobbies or my career. Um, Part of that was because a lot of the media that you see around doesn't actually separate that sexual and romantic attraction that people will see. If you're reading a rom-com or you're watching like, you know, like a, well, when I was younger, like a CW, like teen drama, um, there is no separation. You see someone have this sexual attraction to someone first 
And then a relationship develops afterwards. So I also just had no frame of reference when I was younger for how to go about it as an ace person. Um, So then as I got older, I'm like, I should start thinking about having a partner. I would like to have a life partner. Um, Dating was very awkward to begin with, Um, especially in my 20s where I feel like hormones are still a little higher. It's easier now that I'm in my 30s Um, because there'd be things of like sudden first date kisses and be like, oh, I don't know if I like that. Um, So there had definitely been like hiccups in some of the processes. Um, I definitely would have... um, Issues like I remember actually telling someone once that, like, you know, like it, it was very awkward in the process of dating this guy. I realized that I was ace. And so I felt like I had to come out and tell him this. I'm like, hey, this is kind of what I'm looking for in the process of a relationship. I'm now going to consider identifying as ace. And um, he then gave me a phone call that othered me and then said, oh, because you're ace, I can't be in a relationship with you. And it was like, oh lovely um a lot of people just don't know what it means in the concept of relationship so it has been difficult i am currently in a relationship which is nice um but it is very new and so we'll see how it ends up developing um but open communication obviously is key and he's aware um so and he is only one of two people that i've ever dated who've even been kind of accepting and understood what dating an ace person is going to look like um so it's kind of a numbers game like i think most dating is except i have to date a lot more awkward people um and it gets very frustrating i definitely have started and stopped throughout the years because you're just like it's a it's a lot (laughs) right and exactly as you said like the media portrayal is so important into like how people grow up and what they think a relationship should be like. It's huge. Yeah. Have you found that you've been able to like find an ace community where you live or find other people who also identify as asexual? Yes. It took a while. So when I had first identified as ace, I remember like meetup was a bigger thing back then. So like going on meetup, like, is there like ace meetups around? And there had actually been none in the Chicago area, which made me feel like very, very alone. Um, And then about a year later, I read a fanfic. Um, But in the author's notes of the fanfic, they actually linked to a lot of resources about asexuality. Um, So they linked to what's called AVEN, so the Asexual Visibility Education Network, which is a series of forums. Specifically, what had attracted me to this fanfic was that it had been about ace characters, but also included like this kind of checklist of conversations between them of what are you physically comfortable with? What are you not? Also included links to that checklist. It was a real thing. Um, And then so through those links, ended up finding an online Facebook community of Chicago aces, um, which has been really cool. Um, so it took me about a year to find them, but now that I'm a member, I would definitely say that I'm an active member. I tried to get together with them, um, online in person. Um, I, I, I'm an author, so I actually had a book come out in June and to celebrate the release of it, like a few of us got together at Navy pier and we all bought cake and, you know, so it was just good to see people. Um, so Finding that community, though, has been very important to me, I would say. Good. That's really great to hear. And I would think that 
it also might be easier to date someone who's also asexual. Have you ever like had that experience? Yeah, I have not. Um, there also tends to be a lot of um, overlap, I would say, between asexuality and aromanticism. So it's not uncommon where if you're hanging out with people, um, like if you go to an ace meetup, maybe half of them will also be some version of arrow. Um, and like I mentioned before, I'm biromantic. I'm willing to be in a relationship, you know, with a guy, a girl, whatever. People who are aromantic um, is kind of the romantic version of asexual. So they have no romantic feelings. Um, so sometimes you get that those weird things where you'll go to an ace group and you're like, oh, so only half of the people here even would be willing to have a romantic relationship. So that like just narrows the pool down even further. Um, there was also a lot of times where, um, because there's also these subsets of asexuality and, and romanticism, um, well, some people, uh, demi is a term that's used a lot too, where people have to build these emotional connections first before they even feel romantic attraction or sexual attraction. So you need like, and I'm kind of like this too, like I need a really long runway um, for me to like feel true romantic or sexual attraction to someone. I need like a year of knowing you. <laughs> Um, so like, it's you know, like, if you're just like going to sporadic meetups, like it, it doesn't quite work out as much as you would think. Um, however, I have felt that people who are other forms of queer are more accepting. Um, so while I haven't dated someone who also identifies as ace, dating other people who do identify in some portion of the queer umbrella has been easier. Yeah. And is this something that you, like the queer identity and community put into your books? Oh, a hundred percent. Um, so I mentioned before that I didn't really have media representation of like how asexuality works, how this relationship would kind of work. Um, and so shortly after I joined the local ACE group, I decided to start a book club. And the only thing we would read would be books with ace or arrow rep. Um, and I specifically did it with this understanding that I also never thought that I would be able to see an ace relationship in real life. Like we're maybe 1% of the population, which isn't, you know, like the scale of the earth means that there's a fair amount of people. I have since found them. Um, but I didn't know or expect to find them when I had started the book club. Um, I knew I wasn't gonna get the representation I wanted from TV. I knew I wasn't gonna get it from movies. Um, but I figured, especially within the indie publishing sphere, there's gotta be something out there. Um, so let's use what examples I could find and it's gonna be novels. Um, so started this book club, started with a very tiny list of like, 20, 30 books, maybe. Um, it's been kind of like book club has now been running for probably four years. Um, and in that time, it's been really nice to see the amount of books with ACE reps actually just rapidly increase. Um, when I started, it used to be just indie titles. Now we're seeing mainstream titles, like things coming out from traditional publishers are now having ACE era rep. It's phenomenal. It wasn't around like five years ago. Um, but one of the, I've always been a writer, um, and my first novel that came out versus my short stories, 
um, was really kind of based off of these conversations and experiences that I was having reading these ACE books with my ACE group. Um, we would be reading a lot of these books and we'd be like, oh, what do we think about the rep? Do we think it's good? Do we think it's bad? Um, what do we think about the story? What would we like to see in an ACE story? And that all kind of turned into, like I said, my first, um, my first romance, um, which came out June 21st. Um, so it hasn't been out very long, <laughs> um, but that ACE identity and the fiction around it and finding a community a hundred percent helped with the development of that story. Now you said that you've always been a writer, but you didn't realize that like author would be such a big part of your identity. So do, can you explain that a little bit? Oh yeah, for sure. So, um, when I was like a wee tiny Gwen, um, my parents would have this rule where I wasn't allowed to watch TV on school nights. And then when the summer came around, I wasn't allowed to watch TV unless I had um, read like for 30 minutes or did something creative. And in some cases, it ended up just being writing. Um, so I've actually been writing stories since I was like a third grader, just like sporadic things. Um, but it was always just kind of like a hobby for me originally. Um, and then it was just a hobby that didn't go away. Um, in undergrad, I ended up joining a writer's group. Um, and I had been the only student. So everyone else in this group had already been, um, they were like adults. We'd meet at the local Barnes and Noble, like adults. Like I was 20 at the time, you know, um, <laughs> that's an adult, um, but definitely older than me. They weren't college age. They all had like families and everything. And one woman in, in the group had actually um, had an agent and was having her book go through publication. Someone else had had several short stories published. And I was like, this is something that I could do. So it then ended up becoming this hobby where I started submitting short stories when I was in college. And then it just continued and continued and continued um, to the point where it's almost kind of embarrassing how much time I spend writing right now, how much my friend groups actually revolve around being other authors. And that's kind of what I mean by like, it's such a bigger part of my life than I expected it. I thought it would just be a hobby. But here it is, like, I have a scheduled four hour writing session every week with people. Like I see them so frequently. We're just talking about whatever. Um, like this woman that I've met through a writer's group is now like, you know, one of my really good friends. I'll go over and hang out with her, you know, paint with her and her, her daughter's like drawing pictures with us. I'm just like, like a lot of my friend groups is based on writing. I do a lot of writing things. Um, I also do Nana, NaNoWriMo, so National Novel Writing Month. It's every November. But I'm now a local leader, so I'm not just a participant. I'm also running these events. I'm planning. I'm thinking about nano starting about now. So it's in my head half the year. <laughs> um, I know the local librarians. I hang out with them. Um, I am spending a lot of my free time writing um, versus like... Um, socializing maybe like I will admit like yeah and I, we talked a little bit about dating and like one of the one of the hard things I think about dating regardless of your identity is you're like is this person worth giving up the time that it would be spending otherwise and for me what I would be doing if I wasn't going out on a date would probably be like writing and so I'm like is this is this person better than the time I spend creating stories like it's 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 never 
um, a kind of compromise or thought that I expected to have when I was like 16 or 26. Um, so it has definitely become a focus of my life. Um, which like I said, I just had never expected when I first started. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it, but it's also like become a good part of your life and it's a good identity to have. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and there's like different varieties of me, I would say. Um, cause like I, I mentioned, like I have done short stories and then I've done, you know, um, novels and I tend to also write across genres. So I try not to keep myself pigeonholed and getting bored. Um, but they're also like small things, small different versions of me, small different versions of writing. So, um, lots to explore. And so what has your publishing journey been like? Oh, um, it started off, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I see you laughing. Um, it started off like really, really rough. I will admit. Um, so I ended up like when I first started submitting stories, it wasn't even like electronic submissions. I would print out my short story, stick it in like a flat cardboard envelope and mail it to places. And I would get so many rejections back. Um, so even though I probably started submitting stories for publication, my senior year of college, so how old would I have been? Um, 22, 23, something around there. I didn't actually sign my first contract until I was 29. So it took a while. You're writing, you're sending things out. The other problem, especially with short story submissions is different than like, if you're trying to get a, like an agent, um, is once you send it out to a short story submission, you can't do anything with that story until the magazine rejects it. You're not allowed to take your story and send it to like three different magazines and be like, okay, whoever says yes first gets it. You have to go one by one. And sometimes it might wait months for you to get a yes or no. Um, so it's just a long process to begin with. Um, but that's how I started is with short stories. I actually started with a podcast. So I had sold my story to a podcast. They recorded it and off it went into the web. So it was delightful. Um, and then from there was a lot of short stories in, um, anthologies, some of which had been produced, uh, and published by other people. Some of which actually had ended up being independently published by a local writers group. Um, so a combination of both. And then I decided um, to try to get an agent. Didn't quite work. <laughs> um, and, and and I'm sure it didn't quite work for, for many reasons. Um, but eventually what I did is I had a story that I really enjoyed, but I knew wouldn't work well with agents um, because it was... Um, it was too short, like it would, it wasn't fitting the current market. And so that made me start to think about independent publishing. And so that ended up being my middle grade novel. Um, so, Hey, let's just put this out to the world. It's really short for a novel. It's like 10,000 words, but it's really meant for like kids who are in sixth grade who don't want to have a full novel. They just want something quick and easy. And like, I've actually had that review from kids. So like, I like that it's short and it gets to the point. Like, <laughs> I'm like, great, perfect. You're like, so they're like for readers who don't really like to read is kind of how I designed it. Um, but um, so independent publishing, so then I've kind of just been more and more into independent publishing. 
I will admit that my novel, I had tried the hardest to find an agent for, and I was still trying to find someone even while I started to pursue independent publishing for some of my other work. Um, and I ran into issues, I think, of them not knowing how to publish a story about an ace and arrow woman in all frankness. Um, I got really good feedback on my query letter. Like I had agents request the full manuscript, but all of them were like, no. And I just don't think they knew how to market it because um, it doesn't have the same feel as like we talked about before, like the standard media you will see of like, you know, hot and steamy relationships. And like, it doesn't happen for us. Um, so I ended up actually publishing that still independently, but through a small press versus trying to get an agent. I kind of exhausted my list of agents, to be honest. Um, but the first queer press that I submitted it to, they were like, this is, yeah, let's do it. Um, and then it came out. So it was great. Um, so it's been kind of like a, a wild ride, like started very slow, but now it's just almost accelerating, especially in the indie sphere, because um, once a project is ready, I could just publish something. Um, it's pretty, pretty easy. I know how to do the process myself. I probably release... I haven't even been doing it for a full year yet. I'll be independently publishing for a full year in August. Um, and I, at this point, would have solo titles versus anthologies that I have been a part of. Um, one, two, I'll have four solo works. So, yeah. So then what is the hope and plan for future works? Like, are you going to continue working with this one press? Will you kind of go back to some point, the agent hunt? I probably will never go back to the agent hunt, honestly. Um, it is very frustrating. And not only that, it is very, very, you come to learn subjective. Um, there are some really good indie books out there. There are also some really good like mid-list books. And so but what tends to like um, get picked up by agents and picked up by publishers is things that are fitting what a subset of the market thinks is profitable. You hear this a lot of times also with like why a lot of best-selling authors are white and why aren't they, you know, people of color it's because there is this kind of like stigma in the industry. Like it is there. I am white and a woman, so I tend to have an advantage, but I don't necessarily want it. Um, especially once you're starting to write queer stories. Um, like I said, like I had hit some of those blocks before. Um, and you kind of hit it everywhere. Even one of the short stories that I ended up getting published, I remember getting feedback once and it had shocked him to learn halfway through the story that my main character was a lesbian um, specifically because he didn't realize that it had been a woman, a protagonist. And as soon as I like changed a little detail, like I have her in the bathroom instead of brushing her teeth, I had her putting on mascara. It's like, you know, a woman's going to be doing that. And the next place I sent it, they picked it up right away. So it's just like, Oh, was there like low key homophobia there that I just hadn't picked up on before. So there's like lots of things in the traditional side of things that make me a little wary about it. Like, I know it's full of good people, but as a system, it needs some work. The indie sphere is just so much better to work with. Like I said, like I'm working right now with a small press that they only publish queer stories. Um, and they're called Nine Star Press, in case anyone wants to look at them up. Um, 
But it's also the only place where I've seen where you can go to their website and you could filter by orientation. So you could be like, oh, only give me books with bisexual leads. Only give me books with trans leads. Only give me books with um, like polyamory in it. Um, you can't really search like that in other places. Um, will I work with them again? We'll see. Part of that I think is going to depend on just like my next project. Um, I'm not a fast writer by any means. <laughs> um, I, I like I'm I'm okay with short stories, but like returning to you, the novel took five years from first draft to publication, so it takes a while. Um, and depending on the story, whether or not it would fit like their market and their audience, well, it's just kind of up in the air. Right. Now, do you find when you're reading that you are going mostly through indie published books to get more diversity? Um, yes and no. So um, I do tend to read indie, especially like for, I mentioned my Ace Book Club before, like early on, there was a few traditional stuff, but a lot of our, our list is indie titles. So I will read that. Um, I know a lot of indie authors, so I'm going to definitely try to read their things. Um, but I also do like industry reads is how I call them. Um, and I'm starting to fall off of it because now, like I mentioned, I'm not really as invested in traditional publishing. Um, but the idea is, is like when you're querying your novels or even when you're trying to market it, you're like, oh, it's like this meets that. Um, you have to be aware of what the this and that might be. <laughs> so I tend to like once a quarter um, find traditional books that are doing really well, new releases that have been a lot of buzz. Um, so I could read those too and be aware of what's happening in the industry, what people might be interested in. Um, so I tend to read a f- balance of both, I would say. And so have you started a new project? Um, sort of. So what I'm actually doing this year is I am the lead editor for an anthology. Um, I mentioned before that there's a local group that tends to do it. And so I just kind of am now leading that for this year. So helping, um, this anthology hit the ground and and take off. Um, so it's actually been something that I've been doing since February. Um, but it's a really long process because, um, it's also being treated as kind of like a workshop masterclass thing. And so what I mean is um, typically what happens in anthologies, uh, you submit a story, the editor is like, sure, we'll take it or we're not. And that's it. You know, and then the editor puts it together and off it goes into a nice little book and ta-da, it's on Amazon. Um, But what we're doing with this process is actually is we're having every story that gets submitted is also going through rounds of critique. So, it's not just submit your story and then as an editor, I'm like going yay, nay. Um, these stories are being submitted and then other authors are critiquing them. And then there's another draft and then other authors are critiquing and then so on and so on, as well as editors. Like I'm, I am part of a team. Um, so by the end of it, many of these stories are going through four rounds um, of edits and critiques and drafts and improvements. Um, and we're approaching the end of that process. Um, and then, but that will be my focus for the next few months, I would say, is trying to start to get the admin work around that. What do we want to title it? How do we want to design the cover? How do we want to um, go about organizing the interior files? Um, so that's definitely going to be a project. And then I also mentioned before that I'm um, like a regional leader for National Novel Writing Month, 
that takes time and planning <laughs> as well. So I probably won't be like deep diving and writing anything um, new until probably November. That's typically what I do. I like to say I write novels in November and then edit the rest of the year. Um, but I do have, um, I do consistently like just write short stories. I especially do flash fiction. I tend to just like release them on Tumblr every other week. Um, so I do want to put together a collection of some things I have written in the past year and get that up. Um, specifically like fantasy stories before the year ends. So you mentioned earlier that you do write different sort of genres. So can you talk a little bit more, like, as you just mentioned some fantasy stuff, what those genres include? Yeah. So I tend to run the gauntlet, um, primarily fantasy and science fiction, I would say. Um, and I tend to not do like hard science fiction, um, I tend, I do enjoy a good cyberpunk story. I blame some anime that I watched when I was younger. Um, but so I tend to do stories like, um, interacting with computers, for example, maybe some type of social sci-fi. Um, I do have a novel sitting on my hard drive somewhere that needs to be rewritten, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. That really kind of dealt with, um, turning a space station into like this version of the American dream, like trying to do an allegory that way with it. Um, I do do also a lot of fantasy. So I tend to write um, a lot of stories about like fae and mythical creatures. Um, I have with to my problem, I would say um, it's not uncommon where I'll write a story based off of like an obscure myth and then my critique partners are like, I don't know what's going to understand because they don't know what I'm what I'm talking about or alluding to in some of my stories. Like, what was the most recent one? Um, and uh, so the one I'm working on right now for this anthology that I mentioned um, uh, has kind of like D&D vibes. Um, so the main character is a paladin. And a lot of people were like, what's a paladin? Like, like they didn't understand the tropes of the character um, or the myth element in there is um, Udin's. So um, these water type nymph creatures who I've always found fascinating because they're kind of the opposite of the animal bride trope. Um, so, you know, animal bride tropes is where like, you know, a man steals a, a woman's like seal coat or swan feather jacket and everything. And now she's kind of like trapped to be um, his wife. Udin's are the other way around. Um, they go searching for the husband's. Um, because then they can gain a human soul. Um, so there's just, <laughs> right. So this is like this kind of lovely turn on it, but that's what my story is for this next anthology. Um, and everyone who is reading it is like, I had to like Google this. I don't understand this because it's like parts of mythology that many people might not know, but I think it's also kind of fun because then I can introduce them to these, you know, characters and tropes and, and everything. Um, I did have a story in anthology last year that was based off of Baba Yaga. Um, and of all the people who read it while it was in its draft stage, um, only one person recognized the myth it was based off of because he was Slavic. <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but so I do, I do a lot of those. Um, my romance is a contemporary romance. Um, so like just set in Chicago, nothing mystical about it. 
um, really because I wanted to focus on the relationship between the women versus any type of world building, you know, elements that comes into a lot of my sci-fi and uh, fantasy. But my middle grade is definitely also um, fantasy, specifically paranormal. So deers with ghosts. And it does sound like you do have quite the array and for this short story you're currently working on, it seems like you need like a little like one sheet before it starts saying like, here are a couple terms you might not know. Go feel free to Google right, them well, before reading this story. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- well, that's kind of one of the things that you do have to balance is like, um, especially in this situation where I said, it's just kind of like a workshop. So every author who submits is going through this critique and this workshopping process. And you have to keep in mind, not every person who is then critiquing the story is actually the ideal audience for it. So if someone is critiquing the story and they're like, I don't know what a paladin is. Um, I don't understand like the motivations of this character because I'm leaning into the tropes. Well, then that might not be an error of my story. It might just be this mismatch between who I'm trying to reach with it and who's critiquing it. Um, So I'm not going to tell people to go Google what a paladin is. Like, if they don't know, this is not the story for them. However, there are other um, elements of it, like with um, the whole soul sharing. Like, I had to be way more explicit in that um, because even if you are a fan of the fantasy genre and you read it, um, Udins, I know, are kind of more rare creatures, like mermaids and sirens. People know about that. The you know the the kind of twists of it for other water creatures not everyone knows so I knew that had to come through regardless of your level of familiarity with fantasy, um so those comments like I would be looking at but um I don't want people to Google it either I want people to be able to pick up those details from the story um otherwise it's not doing its job in my opinion and there you go if you're laying it out in the story in a way that you know, works for the specific audience. That's, that's exactly what's needed. And someone who might not know and need to Google, they might not be the right audience, or they might need to read some other things before kind of diving more into what you're specifically writing. Exactly. A lot of, like I mentioned before, like publishing can be very subjective, but so is reading. Like not every book is for every person. Um, And so you just kind of have to find it. And in the indie world, it's a little easier to find and get presence in those niche. Um, So that's also kind of why I'll most likely stick with it. It's easier for me to find readers who are actually going to like what I write. Definitely. So switching topics a little bit, you mentioned early on that Chicago is the place you've lived the longest. So do you want to talk a little bit about travel or places you've previously lived? Oh, I have lived many places. Um, So especially in my 20s, I felt like I moved every two years. Um, I, as soon as I left home for high school and went to college, I never really wanted to go back to where my parents are from. Like I'll go for the holidays, but it was never someplace that I wanted to settle. Like I did a semester abroad while I was in undergrad. So I went to New Zealand. Um, And then right after undergrad, I actually joined the Peace Corps. So I lived in Ethiopia for a little more than two years. Um, And then after that, I came back to the States and I lived in San Francisco. (laughs) Like my mom was so upset with me. She's like, come home. I miss you. I haven't seen you for so many years. It's like, sorry, be happy. I didn't go to grad school in London. Um, 
And then after San Francisco, I ended up coming here to Chicago. Um, because at that point I had moved so regularly, I did only think that I would be here for two, maybe three years. Um, but now it's pushing six, maybe seven. I don't remember math and dates. They blur at this point, especially with COVID. Um, so I've definitely been here for a while and I would consider Chicago almost my, my home city. Um, I went to New York a few years ago. I remember just walking around and going, oh my God, Chicago is so much better. Um, so <laughs> I'm just, I'll, just, I'll be here for a while, but I still want to travel. Like um, I have a goal of hitting all seven continents before I die. I have done six. Um, Antarctica is going to be um, something that I definitely have to save up for and plan. <laughs> so, but I'll get there maybe when I retire. And it sounds like you've had the opportunities. So can you share a little bit more about maybe like the semester abroad or how you've even visited six continents? Oh yeah. So totally. So we can, we can kind of just like circle the globe here. Um, so we're in North America. I've been here because I was born here. So that was an easy one to knock off the list, you know? Um, and then going down to South America. Um, so South America, I've actually done Quito. So the capital of Ecuador and the Galapagos islands. And I did that with, um, a very elaborate science field trip when I was in high school. Um, so it was one of those things where we just kind of hopped in a tiny cruise boat. Um, it held like, I think a dozen people. Um, so some students and then like the AP bio teacher, the chemistry teacher, and we would just get off at a different Island every day and go look at birds or rocks or whatever. Um, but it was fantastic. I got the worst sunburn of my life sunbathing on that boat deck. Um, but I, and I wish I had some of like the really cool photos from it. Like, our chemistry teacher was really um, into photography. And so she had like this underwater camera and she had a really good photo of me like swimming above a sea turtle. And I was just like, ah, like I don't have a copy of that, but I remember her showing it to me. Um, I also remember like the tour guy being really excited about being like, you see this cove? This is where Master and Commander was filmed. It was like, oh, my dad loves those books. Um, <laughs> you know? um, so that was... Um, that was a really good trip. I would like to go maybe not back to, to the Galapagos Islands. Um, it's so much more expensive now. Like we had done it with like student discounts and everything. Um, but someplace else in South America, I think would be really cool to go. Um, continuing around. So Africa, I did that with the Peace Corps. So in Ethiopia for a little more than two years. I lived in um, a tiny little town called Haruta. It was actually... Um, so it had about 13,000 people, which isn't that bad, um, bigger than like where my parents live. They live in a town about 10,000. So I was like, yeah, except um, pretty rural. Um, I remember it was all the rage when halfway through my service, they finally got an internet cafe. So you could like, you know, walk there and then all the computers in a row be like, let's check my email. Um so my cell phone service was awful. Like even with friends and country, I was like sending them letters. <laughs> um, and I ended up serving as um, a lot of Peace Corps volunteers are teachers. And I was a teacher, but I didn't actually have a classroom full of kids, students. Um, kind of like here in the States, there is this process of continuing education for many people in the medical field. Um, so like doctors and nurses have to stay up to date with their certification, take classes and everything. Ethiopia had a similar program for teachers. 
Um, so what I would be in charge is, is like teaching methodology or maybe teaching English to the teachers who could then take these lessons and, and give it to the students. Um, the idea was I could teach a, a class of students or I could teach the teacher who could then teach many classes of students over the course of their lifetime. Um, so that's, that's what I ended up doing there. Um, been to Europe a few times, um, primarily because I still have family there. Um, I'm actually a first generation. My mom immigrated. So she's from Greece. Um, so I've been to Greece a few times. Like I've seen the family village. Um, my dad's family is from Germany. So we still have relatives over in Germany that we have gone to see. Um, so, and, and I've just done sporadic trips there. Um, in terms of Asia, I ended up doing Taiwan, sorry, Thailand. Um, in grad school, my roommate was Thai. Um, and so about a year after grad school, I went down to see her. Um, so ended up having a really good time just catching up, saying hello. Um, but then did have a 22 hour layover in Taiwan and happened to be there for like Taiwan's version of independence day. So, um, just kind of like walking around the city and there'd be like this huge display of like dancing and people beating on drums. And there was a parade. I remember sitting in like the second story of a Starbucks and someone sat next to me and they just like explained the meaning behind all of these floats as they went by. It was a great experience, like a perfect layover. You kind of got two vacations in one, you know? Um, and then when you talk about Oceania, then yeah, that was New Zealand. So New Zealand was my semester abroad in undergrad. Um, and I actually went to work. So I went as an intern for a marketing company. Um, I will be the first to admit I probably wasn't the best intern. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. My first foray to corporate world. I was just like, Oh, okay. Um, and I, and I specifically went to work for like, like a startup. So I'm just like, <laughs> it's like this company was like two dudes and me. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do. I'm not a programmer. Um, I like majored in communications. It was, you know, an odd fit. Um, but I really fell in love with Wellington, which is where I had stayed. And I ended up doing quite a bit of travel within the country. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I would always like to go back, but it's also quite a, quite a trip. It's like 20, 20 flight um, three, three planes for me from here. I'd have to hop from Chicago to LAX and then to Auckland. Um, so, but those are, you know, so I've kind of hit everything in some cases I've hit, you know, I've hit Europe many times. Um, but there are subsets of countries that I would like to, like, I would love to go to the middle East. I have a cousin who actually works there. So why not go pop over and say hi? Um, I'd like to do something more in Latin America. Haven't done that yet. Um, but, um, lots, lots of good places. So, um, haven't really done an international trip since COVID hit, of course. Um, which is sad. I had to cancel what was going to be a road trip through Italy. I had not been there before. Um, and I have a friend who works for like the European version of Megabus, I would say. So we'd be able to get some good, like cheap tickets and such, but, uh, it's, it's not happening anymore. <laughs> Yeah. So do you have any inkling that you might eventually live abroad for a longer period of time again? Um, I think about it. Um, like, um, especially because 
I didn't want to get super political, but everything that's happening, like the, the recent Supreme Court decisions and everything do make me a little nervous. Um, and there are definitely better support nets, I would say, especially in some of the European countries. Um, and my sister and I have talked about it, um, especially because my mom is um, a natural born citizen of Greece there is a possibility that we could get dual citizenship to the EU, um, which would be very, very nice. (laughs) Um, But it would be very hard to uproot my life and just go, I would say. So that kind of keeps me back. The company I currently work for is headquartered in Paris. Um, So I could probably still like move abroad and have a job. but it wouldn't be the same. It would have to be a very selective move. Um, it would probably have to be a city where I already have friends or family living, so I'd have a support network. Um, I think about it, but in practicality, I don't know if I would, not long term, but like I said, again, like my, my company has a European headquarters, and so if they were like, do you just want to like work from Paris for three months? I would definitely say yes to that. It sounds like you should be talking to your company about working in Paris for three months. Right? Right? So um, they actually do, they, they did instigate a program recently that, um, where you could work from any office in the world uh, for up to six weeks. So I do contemplate that. Um, so, but we'll see if, if I do it. And if I do, it'd probably be something about like going to Greece and then I would spend the days in the office and my mom would be like chatting with the cousins wherever. Like she would take a full vacation. And I'd just be free in the evenings. Um, but, you know, it might be fun just to get away for a bit. Right. And before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today? Um, just kind of basic social plugs, if that's okay, about where you want to find me. So Gwen Tolios, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on TikTok. You can find me on Tumblr. Like anywhere you really want to look, you'll find me. Um, Tumblr, I do actually share short stories if you want to just kind of get a peek as to what I've been writing. Um, and then uh, you can find me also on Amazon or Goodreads if you're interested in any of the books that I might have talked about today. Sure. And I can make sure to leave some of that in the description for people to be able to find you. Oh, you're sweet. (laughs) At the end of all of my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have to do with anything that we've talked about. So my question for you is, what do you do when you can't sleep? I... I pick up my phone and I go to archive of our own and I just binge read fan fiction until my eyes are too tired and I fall asleep. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving Gwen's link tree in the description for her. So it brings you to all of those social medias and websites that she talked about just now. So you'll be able to get that all through one simple link. And then I will also be leaving a couple of resources that Gwen mentioned earlier in the episode. So the Avon Network for Asexuality and the press that she's been using, Nine Star Press. So those links will also be there if you would like to check either of those out for more information. 
And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our past episodes, all resources from past guests as well. And it brings you to all of our social media. And we are on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So please feel free to go check those out and follow those pages. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link for that is in the description as well. And my email, of course, is there as well. If you would like to connect with me and be a guest on the show, I always love to hear from new people. So thank you, Gwen, so much for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Cheers, all. Bye.